Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, this is Radio Free Cannabis, voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. I'm your host, Steve D'Angelo. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Cannabis, coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, translated into 195 different languages. We are the voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. Thanks so much for sending us your questions and comments. Please keep doing that. Remember to subscribe to this podcast and let all of your friends and all of your family know that it's going on. Also remember to support the companies that help make this podcast possible, Harborside Incorporated, Homegrown, Liberty Clothing, and I'm just going to mention this really cool hemp company now, uh, Hemp Zoo, right? Hemp Zoo makes these beautifully constructed, well-designed hemp garments. Uh, You won't see me wearing a logo shirt because I don't wear logo shirts, but if I wore a logo shirt, I would wear this one for sure. So um, in my lifelong study of the cannabis plant, I've learned that one of the most consistent historical patterns is the association of cannabis with creativity. The way that it's sparked inspiration and influenced the work of musicians, poets, writers, painters, and almost every other creative art that you can imagine. This pattern goes very far back in time. The ancient Greeks used cannabis to hone their oratory and theater. Medieval Sufi poets celebrated cannabis as a aid to inspiration and a connection to the divine. Alexander Dumas, the author of The Three Musketeers and other classics, was a member of the Club des Hachachines, a group of artists who believed that cannabis enhanced their literary talents. The club also included other celebrated writers like Charles Baudelaire, Victor Hugo, and Eugene Delacroix, so maybe they were onto something. In the modern era, reggae musicians like Bob Marley and Peter Tosh have become global icons of cannabis creativity. And I could go on for the whole of the next hour just listing by name all of the other amazing talented artists who have credited cannabis as being an inspirational force and a creative tool. In the United States, the connection between cannabis and creativity has long been recognized in the African-American community. Former poet laureate of the United States, Maya Angelou, started consuming cannabis as a teenager in the 1920s. She described her experience this way. I learned new postures and developed new dreams. From a natural stiffness, I melted into a grinning tolerance. Walking on the streets became high adventure eating my mother's huge dinners and opulent entertainment, and playing with my son was side-cracking hilarity. For the first time, life amused me. By the time of her life, Maya Angelou, a woman who smoked cannabis before playing with her child, had received over 50 honorary degrees, three Grammys, and the Presidential Medal of Arts. Legendary jazz trumpeter Louis Armstrong, one of the most revered musicians in the entire world, started consuming cannabis in New Orleans 
just a few years earlier than Maya, when jazz was beginning to break into the mainstream of American culture. He described cannabis as an assistant and as a friend and as a medicine that relaxes you and helps you forget all the bad things that happened to you as a black man in America. In our show today, we'll be exploring this historic pattern, the association of cannabis with creative artists. We'll also be exploring another pattern, a much more destructive pattern, a darker pattern. It's not really associated with cannabis per se, but it is associated with the prohibition of cannabis and the war on drugs in general. In the United States, young black men are 15 times as likely to be murdered as young white men. The reason for this disparity are complex. Racial segregation plays a role, right? Murder rates in unsegregated communities are a lot lower than they are in segregated communities. And law enforcement plays a role because the cops investigate the murders of black men way less aggressively than they do the murders of white men. So the risk of arrest for killing a black man, also much lower. And another part of it is the war on drugs, right? The sketchy street markets that that war produces where the smallest of misperceived actions can provoke gunfire. And all of this, this whole mess, just supercharged by the flood tide of weapons that are pouring into American society. Our guests today are C.J. Wallace and his business partner, Willie Mack. C.J. is best known as the son of the rapper and songwriter Biggie Smalls, also known as the notorious B.I.G., Biggie was the son of Jamaican immigrants. He grew up in Brooklyn on the edges of the Bed-Stuy neighborhood. He seems to have always been precocious, right? Like a child prodigy, he excelled as a student in his English classes and also started rapping and dealing illegal substances as a teenager. He rose incredibly rapidly to become a platinum-selling pop star. Both Rolling Stone and Billboard called Biggie the greatest rapper of all time. But his career and his life were tragically cut short, very short, when he was murdered by gunfire just three years after his first album was released. His murder remains unsolved, like the murders of many, many black men. And we can only imagine what else he would have gone on to create had he lived. I first met CJ when he was beginning to explore the idea of a legal cannabis brand based on his father's legacy. CJ's story is interesting to me because it pulls so many common threads together. The way cannabis is connected to artistic creativity, the role Jamaica has played in that dynamic, the murder of black men, the role of law enforcement in those murders and the war on drugs in general. I think CJ's story is kind of a template of a generational experience for many people of color the loss of a parent to violence or incarceration, the challenges of growing up without them, and the eventual overcoming of that trauma through creativity, through cannabis, and through the cannabis industry, the legal cannabis industry. CJ, Willie, thanks so much for being with us uh, here, and welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you so much, Steve, for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks so much, Steve. It's good to see you again. Can I just say that was a beautiful intro? That was amazing. 
Well, well, thank you so much. Um, you know, one of the the things that this show gives me the opportunity to do is is you know learn some things and explore some things that I didn't know and and tie some strings together. So, thanks so much for for the appreciation. Um, you know, picking up right away on that kind of generational template theme, CJ, uh, you lost your father at an incredibly young age. Um, uh, and you grew up without him. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what your circumstances of growing up were like, what, what the influences on your life were, what it was like to be without your father? Yeah. Um, for me, uh, I always had a father, fortunately. Um, the man who raised me, Todd Russo, him and my mom, um, he was actually, you know, with my mom the night my dad actually passed. And, you know, from the stories that he's told me about that night, you know, he felt like he was almost inclined to be there for her as a friend before anything else. Um, just because the loss of him was just kind of huge. And, and I could, I still can't really imagine what, what she was feeling to to lose him at that time i know they were going through things but i know that they truthfully wanted to work that out um and to have me just there in the middle of all of it uh definitely caused a lot of emotional just you know unease and i always think uh just about growing up without my biological father and having you know a quote-unquote stepfather it, it there was never really a difference for me I never called him my stepdad um, he was there for me from day one you know I have no memory of when I was five months old so my earliest memories are you know being in in Jersey we lived in Livingston and in Matawan um, we eventually moved to Atlanta and he was always there you know, he was, he was my dad and having my siblings, my younger brother, Josh, my other younger brother, Ryder, my older sisters, China and Tiana. Um, I always felt like I had my family. Um, it wasn't until I got around seven, eight years old to where I really started to learn more about who my biological father was. It's such a blessing uh, that you had just Todd, Todd in your, in your life. I, you know, one of the the real blessings in my life is that when I came out here to California about 15 years ago, a very lovely woman named Yoli Felix fell in love with me. And I've never had kids of my own um, because I've lived this really dangerous life and never felt like I could responsibly raise children. Um, but Yoli has two amazing daughters who each have two amazing daughters. And, uh, and I love them dearly. And, and I think they love me too. I know they do. And I'm always searching for this term, right? Because step, stepfather, stepdaughter, stepgranddaughter, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't hit it right. So I refer to them as my daughters in love or my granddaughters in love. And um, and this is, you know, this is what happens um, when when communities and families are reasonably healthy, and trauma happens. Um, friends and family step in. They provide this support function, and this is how our communities, communities that have uh, been oppressed, have managed to to persist by taking care of ourselves, by taking care of of each other. 
Um, so thinking ab about that, um, learning about your, your father, CJ, how did you, seven, eight years old, how did you start realizing like who he was and what kind of role he played? Yeah, my mom, it was my mom at first. She, once I started to grow into um, a young adult, I guess, or a young man, um, certain habits, certain things that um, he would do, like the way we rubbed our noses, something as simple as that, we both rubbed our noses the same way. And my mom would always say that, like, even the way we breathed, we both had asthma. Um, so we both were very heavy breathed and would be out of breath just going up the stairs. So um, stuff like that would always, either my mom or my grandma would tell me, you know, that's, wow, you, you look just like your dad right now. That was a very popular phrase. And um, definitely once I uh, started acting and when I did Notorious, um, you know, being able to play him in his movie uh not a lot of kids get to do that for their in their for their own dad um i was lucky enough to look just enough like him at that age and to be at that age um timing man i can't that was that was perfect timing and i was really turning i think i was 13 at that time so kind of at that age where i was starting to ask more questions and you know want to learn more about who my dad was and the movie really made that uh, a mission for me to just ask questions and study and, and look at old videos and go deep in the crates of my grandma's closet. And that was really where it started, me understanding, okay, Frank White, understanding his nicknames, understanding, you know, all of his friends and, you know, some of the guys he didn't really like that, you know, were quote unquote friends, you know, it's, it was, it was a really a fun uh, learning experience. Yeah, I, I can only imagine, right? Um, uh, you know, this realization of how how big a star your 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 father was, um, and uh, so it's kind of, I guess, it was an immersion experience. Then making the film it got you really up to speed pretty quickly, huh? One hundred percent. And my grandma was the one who, you know, made that call out like ask me do you think you would want to do it i think the director or i forget if george tillman he was the director of the film i'm not sure if he made the suggestion to her or if she made it to him but one of them you know made that suggestion and i'm happy they did and did you like acting i did it ended up you know i ended up really wanting to pursue acting and i did a couple more films afterwards and i still you know it really made me enjoy um, just the work, the whole process of being on set and, you know, understanding the life of the director, producer, all the way down to the makeup team, grips, crew, lighting, gaffing, all of it. I loved the whole process. So, yeah, it's it definitely sparked something in me creatively. Cool. Well, I hope we get to to see some more some more stuff, um, some more films with you. Uh, um, let me pull Willie in. Um, Willie, how did you guys meet? So we met through um, Eric Shevin, who you may know, Canvas lawyer, great guy. 
CJ was a client of his. Eric and I, at the time, were business partners on another company, Starling Brands, and CJ was looking for um, someone to help him with that cannabis branding agency to start a cannabis brand. And um, we kind of, me, me, him, and Todd had our first meeting and really connected. And, you know, it was interesting because one of the first things that, you know, we talked when we first spoke was CJ's desire to not, to do two things. One, not do Biggie Blunts, Biggie Bongs, and just sort of use his dad's name to kind of just create very sort of derivative cannabis products. And two, more importantly, look at cannabis from a health and wellness standpoint because of Ryder, his younger brother, who, had, who, who was autistic. And I had spent some time working with JH Juice and with Case Manufacturing, so a lot of time in the medical field. And it was that sort of initial connection between both of our desires, all three of our desires, to, that we all understood cannabis as a tool for healing and also creativity that really formed this really amazing partnership with Todd as well. And, and what about your connection to cannabis? How did, how did you first encounter the, the plant, Willie? What was that like for you? My, it's funny, because my first connection with it was in the 80s when it was, you know, war on drugs, fry your brain, eggs, that whole, you know, Nancy Reagan's just said no. And a cousin of mine was diagnosed with HIV, and I remember being a teenager, and the gay community, as a queer man, the gay and LGBTQ community was fighting for cannabis legalization for um, help with nausea and some of the side effects of AZT. And I kind of was conflicted with, I thought these were drugs, and they were bad, but yet there are people on the front line who I connect with on a very, you know, fill in the closet, quiet level, and it could potentially help my cousin and help some other people that were in the community with this struggling with this, you know, plague was the first connection. Then it wasn't until college where I actually tried it for the first time. And first time I tried it, inhaled it, loved it. It was always sort of, you know, as an artist, as a creative, as a, as a photographer, it was always kind of, it just helped me deal with so much stress and anxiety. Yeah, I always like to, 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 to get the story. So that's really interesting, right? That you're, first real positive connection with cannabis there in the 1980s is it was just when it was beginning you were really right on the tip man because i remember 1987 1988 1989 that's when the aids crisis was blowing up and and it was the first time that we were really able to introduce to the public the idea that cannabis was something other than as as we were taught in the 1980s this horrible drug that belonged right next to crack and uh, so I'm, I'm glad that some of that vibration made it its way out to you and um, I'm glad that you found your way to the plant. Me too. I mean, I, could, I couldn't imagine. It's been something that I've used creatively for, you know, all the work I've done, creative campaigns, personally, and coming to California, being able to use it and understand, because I've spent most of my life in New York, all of the various derivative ways of using it for pain and inflammation and sleeping and nausea and all the different things that exist outside of recreation which you know we always talk about it it's just sort of most people recreation are using it for some undiagnosed medical condition i think it's this there's a line there that you know i think we need to kind of blur in some ways and let people understand that there is this bigger opportunity for people to really feel heal themselves be creative and connect to the power of the plant and what about you cj how did you first encounter the plant how was it for you oh man my very first encounter from what I can remember, um, was definitely in Atlanta. We had a, my mom and dad built a studio in the basement and, you know, all the albums, all the classics, a lot of other artists would come over and there was always a party in the basement. It was always a good time. 
in that studio and we were on the second floor so we could hear it two floors up <laughs> and me and my brother and my sister would always just try to sneak our way in the studio I, my personal favorite room was in the booth that's where I could just sit and listen to my mom sing and do all her runs and do all the takes she would be in there for hours sometimes just going back and doing the same take over and over and she would be in there with a blunt or a joint whatever was the preferred way tonight <laughs> and I just remember the smell man the smell of it I was probably five or six and that smell and the smell of incense and the smell of the the uh the candles the votivo candles <laughs> it was always it was always just an enticing smell and i just loved it and i always was just curious about it and why are they using it what does it do why is it helping <laughs> you know um and always understanding the difference between cigarettes and and cannabis and i always knew that cigarettes really hurt my nose and i didn't like that and the first time I can remember actually, you know, having a conversation with my mom about cannabis, um, I was probably in either fifth or sixth grade, and we were living in Venice at the time. We'd moved to LA, and she had some some cannabis in her bathroom, and this is me still not really understanding the difference between tobacco and cannabis. Um, nobody's talked to me about it. I just kind of know that my parents use it and it helps them but this time i just decided to flush her weed down the toilet and she knew it was me i don't know how she knew it was me but she pulls me to the side or she came in my room and she's like did you flush my weed down the toilet <laughs> and i told her yes i was like yeah you're you're killing yourself you know i remember dare they came to our school and the, the D-A-R-E, you know, I was, I was so just like, you know, well, if my parents are using it, but it's bad. And I just didn't know, I wanted information about it. And she kind of just told me like, this is what helps me stay calm throughout the day. I have three kids and, you know, <laughs> this is right after, this is actually after Ryder was born. So now she has four kids and she's like, I need this every day. You don't really understand. This helps me creatively. It helps me just take all the stress out. Like, and she never really talked to me that seriously. And after that, I just really had a, you know, m much more respect for her for talking to me about it and actually letting me know like this helps me, you know, it, it helps me. Whatever they're telling you at school, you know, <laughs> it helps me. That's all you need to know. Well, you know, this is um, it's a kind of amusing and, and funny story. Um, and I think it shows, again, the, the strength of your family, that your mom was able to have that kind of conversation with you and you were able to, to hear it from her in a good way. But it just strikes me, again, uh, how insidious prohibition and the stigma of cannabis is, right? Long before most young American children ever get into contact with the criminal justice system uh, or police or anything like that, the tendrils of prohibition have already reached their fingers deep into their family life. 
And uh, your story uh, about having been propagandized by D.A.R.E. in school and then going uh, to the authorities and, and or not going to the authorities, in your case, you just flushed your mother's weed. But, you know, there's other stories I've heard where kids have actually gone and reported their parents to the cops and, and, and it resulted sometimes in the children being removed from the family and the parents being prosecuted. And, and so this is just, you know, an, another example. It's, it's great that it turned out, you know, fairly, fairly well uh, for you, CJ, but so many times I've seen that same kind of, uh, of dynamic result in really, really horrifying kinds of, of damage. So a quick question. What was your first connection to cannabis? Well, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C. Um, when uh, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, when the whole town was occupied by protesters protesting against the war in Vietnam. And uh, I went to those early protests against the war, and there were always people smoking joints, passing them around. Now, I'm like nine years old at that time. Nobody's passing me the joint. But I have these very positive associations of cannabis with progressiveness, with peace, with social justice. I grew up in a civil rights family, so all those associations were positive for me. And then um, when I was in seventh grade, at the end of, I don't know, the first day of school or maybe the second day, um, uh, a friend came up, a new friend came up and asked me if I wanted to go to a Mexican tea party. And, and so I did, and, um, and I had my first experience with cannabis at the age of 13 uh, in, um, in my friend's house. And um, it was quite an amazing experience. If anybody wants to learn more about it, they can check out my book, The Cannabis Manifesto. I, I opened the book with that experience. The short story is that um, I really I had a, an incredibly profound experience with cannabis on the, on the first time out. Looking backwards, it was my first genuine spiritual experience. And uh, and really, you know, locked in my commitment to this to this plan at a very early age. So let's talk about Jamaica, right? Um, uh, Jamaica is kind of like here, uh, part of this story. Um, and how does how did that manifest in in your life, CJ? Um, you you know, you come from a family of Jamaican uh, immigrants. Um, how, how did that, how did, did that role and the connection of Jamaica to cannabis, um, manifest in your life? Man, it's, it's actually very strange. Um, so my grandma, <laughs> I love you, Mima. She's actually Jehovah's witness. So, you know, it's not like she was the one or there was anyone in my family other than my uncle Dave. Um, that really uh, sort of preached the, the Rasta lifestyle. Um, really just my dad, you know, uh, he was one of the most open Wallaces to talk about cannabis. And, um, you know, going back to my great grandma's house and I have so much family in Trelawney, um, in Jacksontown. <laughs> It's, it's, it's a lot of us out there. And every time we're over there, it's either a, a cookout or a family barbecue or, or something going on. And, you know, the young people that are in the town are always around. So the earliest times I can remember visiting, um, I, I was probably about 14 or 15 years old. And, you know, 
the young boys, the, the young boys around the, in the town are always smoking joints out, like right outside of my grandma's house. So it's, it's always around, it's present everywhere. And, you know, um, just the last time I was there, it's, you know, I was talking to my great grandma about, you know, we were talking to her, Willie was with me just about her arthritis. And, you know, we gave her some muscle creams to help her out, you know, um, and just educating them on the plant a little bit more because even they don't, you know, have all of the information there, you know, they're still a bit in the older, in the old times. Um, so it's, it's, it's been a little bit of both me understanding, you know, that culture, me learning that culture. Um, we visited a few farms out there and talked to some really great people. And, you know, obviously just, just, having family there, uh, it, it, it really continues to, you know, give me a, a bit of reality. Um, having some people that are still living, you know, very modestly in my life. Do you even remember exactly when you first consumed cannabis? I think I was about 15 or 16. I was definitely in high school though. Um, I think the very first time, um, it might have been. <laughs> I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure because I my memory is shot from high school. <laughs> but honestly, but it might have been my mom's weed. <laughs> I might have taken some of her weed, <laughs> and she knew she knows I was taking her weed. So it's not like this is you know new information. <laughs> so your changing relationship with mom's stash is kind of woven through this whole story, right? Yeah. Definitely, definitely. I was um, checking the stat. I used to flush it, and then it became the, yeah. <laughs> Mom stash, good name for Brandon. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I don't think there is anything wrong with your memory. I'll tell you what I think it was. This is another pattern that I've noticed in my long study of cannabis. Kids who grow up in households where cannabis is a normal thing usually do not remember the first time that they consumed cannabis. Kids who've grown up in prohibitionist families where cannabis was not allowed, where it was stigmatized and demonized, almost always remember with exact precision the precise time and manner that they first consumed the plant, right? It's this really interesting thing. Willie, what about you? What was your actual first consumption experience? In college, I went the summer before and did a French intensive like workshop. And so there were like maybe 30 students freshman on campus before anyone else was there and you know some one of the guys in the in the program had some weed we were in like a, a, somebody's dorm we were all like and I was still a little like kind of like not afraid but I'm like I'm in college now screw it so you know a couple of beers passing a joint coughed up a bunch then like take it easy take it easy a couple more hits and then just I remember just I remember just kind of laying back on the bed just being like whoa this is really nice. <laughs> and, and then I know it's funny because I, I just I thought about this. I, I think, because then I started smoking like maybe like a week later, because we were in an intensive French course. So we were really speaking French the whole time. I started dreaming in French. My, I was dreaming in French. I could speak it fluently, telling jokes better than I could ever in real life. But I just, I, I, never, made the, I never made the connection between those two. But it was like, it became this very joyous experience from that point on. We're all still discovering the many different ways that this plant can can help us. And it's, you know, it's so often it's just about flow, right? 
uh, when you're learning language or you're playing music, or you're writing a poem, a lot of it's just about, you know, getting out of this place where our minds spend most of our time and being more open and being more receptive to the flow that's, that's always there. Um, so I'm not surprised to hear that you had that experience. Well, you know, thanks so much for sharing some of this background, guys. I, I think I'd like now to you know, move on to a little bit of the, the work that you've been uh, doing together. And uh, Willie, you are uh, CEO of Think Big. And maybe you could just sort of um, explain what, what Think Big is up to, and, um, and, and then we can talk a little bit about Frank White. Yeah, I mean, Think Big started CJ's desire to understand how to sort of his, his responsibility to his dad's legacy. And over the last few years, it's really become, you know, it's the overarching business for our, our company. And it's sort of, it's the social justice advocacy legalization. We really are fighting for global hemp and cannabis legalization, full stop, equitable legalization. We're fighting for criminal and social justice reform. So really, how do we talk about correcting all the issues in prohibition and having honest conversations around the systemic racist and sort of systemic sort of disproportionate problems facing to like minority communities. And then we also want to look at reinvesting in communities. How do we how do we make whole people and communities that were left out and how do we build this industry, billion trillion industry that's going to be equitable and represent the people that were most harmed. You know, where the black people, where the Latinos, where the brown people, where the LGBTQ community. We want to have a voice and a say in how this industry is shaped so that it's not just a bunch of rich old white dudes who have no connection to the plant are looking and don't have the care or the, or, the, or the desire to look at it from all the beautiful benefits that it's given to the world. And it's really important for us to do that because as we think about, you know, CJ's responsibility to his dad's legacy and how do we think bigger about our responsibility to ourselves, this planet and the plant and to our communities, it's really the, uh, it was created as an opportunity for us to talk about all those things and advocate for and push forward that that, that, that way of thinking and the way of um, examining cannabis in a bigger way. You know, the, what strikes me uh, about your account there is the starting point of, of social justice, of legalization, of moving the mission and the cause forward as being kind of the starting point when you're thinking about your business endeavors. And, you know, one of the things that's that's happened in the past year that I've been really grateful for is is to see a lot of cannabis businesses stepping up to the plate and beginning to support social justice initiatives, initiatives like the Last Prisoner Project and, and other organizations. Um, but it, it, it very often seems more to be an afterthought um, rather than something that's baked into the ethic and the culture and the approach of, of the business from the beginning. What what made you decide to do that, CJ? Honestly, um, my youngest brother, Ryder. Um, when I was in high school, we that was the first time we started using CBD and different THC products. It started with, you know, just gummies. My mom was very skeptical about using uh, pharmaceuticals like Ritalin and stuff like that, just because we all know and have seen the side effects. Um, you know, she grew up in in different foster homes, you know, and she's, she had, you know, sisters and brothers who were, you know, might have been autistic, didn't really know back then. It was really just, you know, he's, he's special or he's, you know, they didn't really have all the 
education back at that time, which is crazy to think about. And, you know, now, um, you know, having seen that, she definitely stayed away from that. And I'm happy she did. Um, because, you know, after we started using CBD and really understanding which, what was his ratio um, back in 2012 when we first started, uh, it was really trial and error. You know, it was some products you get one week, it's, it's helping him the next week. You know, he's got bloodshot eyes and he's tired and he's, you know, it's not what we want happening. So um, it was really understanding that, you know, Ryder's going to live his, his life and we want to make sure that he's living his life comfortably, um, which is what really drove me to want to create my own products. Just thinking about that and, you know, wanting to make sure that he's getting the right product and in doing that research, we found, I saw Jaden's Juice, which was the company that Willie used to work for. And, you know, reading about Jaden's story, it, it inspired me to want to make sure that Ryder was living as comfortable as possible. So, um, and also to just do more research. Um, I love seeing those types of stories. And I felt like if, as long as we're continuing to spread this type of information, more people will really understand the power of this plant and um, once it became a serious thing it wasn't until I had graduated high school I was uh, working on I had just filmed finished filming a tv show in Atlanta and um, months after that we met Willie so you know it was always inspired by Ryder and, and my grandma and her battle with breast cancer and you know wanting to educate our family just about the power of the plant and it's always been you know, so taboo in our house to talk about, even though my, I was always comfortable around it. You know, my family was definitely, uh, like you said, it wasn't um, a prohibition household, but I didn't feel comfortable talking about it to my parents at a certain age. Um, so I definitely want to just inspire other families to have that same birds and the bees talk. It should be the same thing, the alcohol and, and cannabis talk. It's, it's all it all correlates to me so (laughs) that's a great way to put it man the birds and the bee talk right but the birds and the bees talk is like it's going in the reverse direction now where young people are needing to sit down and actually explain the facts of life to their older relatives um and you know again it's like i i love this conversation because there's so many threads that that come together this is something that's happening all over around the world now where young people, uh, after spending years, you know, hiding their cannabis use, not talking about it, afraid of stigma, not wanting to offend their relatives, not wanting to disrupt their family relationships. Um, Now that we've been able to create a little bit of progress, a little bit of room for reasonable conversation about cannabis, many, many young people are engaging in these conversations. And you know, in some cases, they're saving the lives of their older relatives. And in every single case, there's this huge improvement to family life. Um, You know, the weight that is lifted from our shoulders, when we can actually be honest about our cannabis use with the people that we love the most, when we can share with them the benefits that we've derived from this plant, is just a tremendously wonderful feeling. So, 
Um, I, I encourage you to keep on talking about that. And, you know, I, I think in, in a lot of ways, CJ, uh, your story can serve as an example for other people who are going through these same kinds of situations. And that, you know, the birds and the bees conversation, that's never an easy conversation for, for anybody, whether it's the birds and the bees or, or whether it's cannabis. And, and uh, so I'd encourage you to talk about that more and, and, and encourage people to follow your, your example there. It's a, it's a pretty great thing. Um, so um, let's talk a little bit more about, the, about Think Big and Frank White and how they connect with each other. Yeah, um, I'll kick it off and see if we can give a little, we'll do a little back and forth. So the best way we can we can describe it is everyone kind of knows Product Red, whose goal is to eradicate HIV and focus on that. And then they have some brands they work with from their own brands that has a consumer connection to help fund their charitable efforts and that their efforts. So Big Big is sort of our red. We're fighting, they're fighting for HIV. We're fighting for cannabis, equitable cannabis legalization. Frank White is our lifestyle and sort of creative brand. It really comes from, you know, and I'm going to have CJ go through sort of the background. I'm going to tell sort of about what it is. It really is about how do we talk about the science of the flow state? How do we talk about creativity? How do we celebrate black and, and marginalized people's creativity and really celebrate that? Because so much of it was aided by cannabis as an ultimate ghostwriter and so much of the music that we have, but yet society hasn't really honored and embraced that. And how do we talk about that? So for us, Frank White is, allows us to have a music content platform, fashion apparel collaborations, CBD, hemp-derived products, cannabis-derived products as well, and really allows us to be more of a storytelling brand. How do we talk about CJ stepping into the role of the legacy of his father, but through his own sort of lens? And how do we talk about and celebrate the impact of black creativity and cannabis tied to it and really give people opportunity to recognize that the flow state is where creativity comes from, it's self-expression, self-expression is freedom. If you feel comfortable when you're in that place in the zone where you're just your best version of yourself, we want to really inspire and celebrate that through collaborations we work with, the products we work with. How do we get people, how do we get the world to really have this conversation that celebrates creativity in cannabis? And the, and the, the name Frank White comes from Biggie. And CJ, you can step in and kind of give us a background on that because I love the story. Yeah. So I've always been interested in Frank White, just the name itself. Um, it was really my dad who you know, Todd, who really kept that bug in my ear. Um, always like, don't forget Frank White. Like it was always like one of those names that just, we knew it wasn't owned by anybody, um, <laughs> which is pretty funny. So I, I always felt like it was sort of a John Doe sort of pseudonym name. Um, and after watching the movie, uh, The King of New York, you know, really understanding how my dad sort of played on that and being the King of New York and Christopher Walken. I just love those sort of heroic villain stories. And my dad was really that ultimate mobster boss and he made you believe everything he was saying. He was really one of the scariest figures in rap. I always felt that way. And, you know, him and Scarface. Uh, <laughs> but really Frank White was always one of those um, Hidden, hidden gems that I just felt like not a lot of people knew. It was really, if you know, you know. And, you know, I've, I've always wanted to sort of spread that name and, you know, own that name, make it more prominent and more, a bit more high class, high luxury. Uh, um, and it's almost, 
an untouchable figure. Um, I just, I, I love the way that he was able to sort of be multiple people. And, you know, I felt like my dad was one of the best actors in rap. He could have, you know, portrayed anybody. And he was really just this nice, soft guy, much like me. And, you know, he was, he was an actor at heart. And um, yeah, that's, that's Frank White. It's, it's 100% creativity, like Willie was saying. And, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to, to show uh, a lot of the stuff that we've got going on. So for, for the, the audience who's maybe not, not totally familiar with the story in the film, where exactly did the Frank White name come from? Yes, Frank White came from Christopher Walken in the movie The King of New York. Uh-huh. Okay. Give me a little bit more. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, give me some more background. It was basically uh, a movie about, man, how do you, how do you break this down? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make it as, as you know, PG-13, but he was, uh, he was a boss. He was, he was the boss. He, he wanted to, to be the boss of New York. And, um, my dad sort of played on that in, in rap and took that name because he felt he was the king of New York. And, uh, I think he, he chose the right name. So this is like this other interesting pattern that goes through the world of cannabis. It really goes through the world of, of any oppressed group of people. And that's code, right? Um, we haven't always been able to be open. In fact, we haven't at all been able to be open about who we are, uh, about what we're up to, about what we're doing, um, uh, about what our real lives are really like. And so we've developed things like 420 is a code. It started out as a code. Um, even the word marijuana, many people believe, started out as a code word in Mexico. And, and so it strikes me again that, you know, that here there's this, there's this word which to the outside world doesn't have uh, very much significance, um, a very you know, ordinary name. But to people who have gotten the code, it, it says everything, right? Definitely. So I've, I've really been impressed um, seeing the stream of stories that have been coming out about the political work that that you guys have been up to. You've been going up to the Capitol. You've been lobbying um, up there. What what was that experience like for you going to the Capitol? Man, oh, man. I've never pictured myself as a advocate or a lobbyist, someone who would be talking to assembly leaders and politicians, but it was it was an incredible experience um, to even have the governor's office of New York want to listen to us and you know want to hear what we have to say. It's it just it really to me showed how much weight the Wallace name carries and. Um, how much good work I need to be doing to take advantage of that. Um, and it was, it was really inspiring uh, just to see a lot of black and brown people doing hard work, traveling from the city, coming up. That, that's not an easy trip. <laughs> you know, for me, it was, it was pretty amazing to see all of these people so driven to try to, you know, make this a just world. And 
you know, ever since we started, me and Willie really started, it's, it's been, how can we change the world? And, you know, I've, I've always been inspired by just all the people that are, don't get the credit, you know, the people that really don't get the, the shine and the light that they deserve. So it was, it was, it was beyond incredible, you know, to be, get a shout out on the assembly floor. It was, it was awesome. I, I had a bad hair day too. It was great. <laughs> You know, uh, I, I, your sense of empowerment coming out of that is again, it's you know, it's something that I think is it's a, it's a common pattern. I know that you know the first time that I started going up, and I, I grew up in Washington D.C., so I was quite young when I first went up to my first congressman's office and my first senator's office, uh, talking to them about cannabis, and I was amazed that I just like walked into the door. And there was somebody in the staff who actually sat down and listened to me and took the pieces of paper that I had and thanked me for coming and treated me in a, in a reasonably civil kind of way. And I, I did not at that time have the feeling that they were going to do anything about it. But it was still empowering just to go there and be close to the levers of power and make my voice heard. Right. Um, You've also been doing these community tours. Has has that been different from the Capitol, from the governor's office? And if so, how? What have what's it been like to actually be out working more close to the neighborhood? Yeah. So when we when we were in New York, we also went to visit the Harlem Business Alliance. Shout out to Regina, the whole team over there. And obviously, being in Harlem, you know, you feel a little bit more at home. Obviously. Uh, it's a bit of a comfort difference, but you know, still, still the same, uh, you know, drive. I, f I still felt like we were still having a, a a serious conversation. It didn't make it, you know, more lax or or, or even like it, I felt still felt pressure to to want to, you know, work together and, and try to find a common ground and figure out how we can help each other. So. Um, yeah, and we also visited Reverend Reverend Flake, and uh, yeah, which is great. And yeah, we also spoke with Eric Adams, and it's it's it still uh, it still hasn't sunk in for me. Really, this year's been crazy, and I, I'm I don't think I'm gonna really feel the effect of all the work we've been doing until. So this guy's out the office, honestly. Till we get this guy out of there, I really don't feel like anything we're doing is is really helping until he's gone. Um, that's just honestly how I feel. But it's it's good to be doing good work. It's good to be doing um, something with our time that we that we know is leading to the right cause. Um, yeah, and it's funny to follow from that as well, like. You know, actually, by the way, I also grew up in D.C., so the policy side, you know, is just part of my, my childhood. So, and, I, you know, going to the Capitol, White House, all that. But going to New York, and I, I, my adult life, and my, I'm a New Yorker, like, was in New York and being there and seeing, as CJ said, the diversity of the elected body, getting the warm reception, and people really wanting to understand, like, what we're talking about, wanting to learn. Like, everyone was really, like, we know we want to do this. We know it's not right now. We have to figure out how we can do it. You know, with us being in California, working with Minority Cannabis Business Association and yourself, the Lens Business Project and Steve Hawkins at Marijuana Policy Project and really, 
you know, we spent the last couple of years really understanding the issues, understanding the space and what, what's, what, what's happening and being able to have conversations with elected officials, with the cannabis czar, with the Harlem Business Alliance, with, you know, Reverend Flake and Eric Adams' office and understand, well, you know, as New York, they don't, they don't have a, they didn't have a medical program like California did. So just from a societal standpoint, we've been, we're kind of from the future. We see how this works. We see what, how it's not going to, kids aren't going to be burning school down. It's going to go crazy. So being able to kind of talk to them about what are the concerns from their constituents, what are the fears, how do we do this also to really talk about the people who are most harmed and how do we define that and how do we help them with language that can shape and draft regulations and legislation that can do the right thing to really build more equity and diversity and inclusion within black, brown, queer people in New York because New York is going to be the crown jewel of canvassing in this country. I think we all know that. It's just, it's New York. And so much of the city consumes it already, but being able to really think about what does that look like from a business standpoint, from a gentrification standpoint, from an opportunity standpoint, from revenue, and taxation, and social equity, community development, really was also a, for us and for me, was like a nice, like, you know, you kind of, and you get this, you kind of get so you're in the weeds all the time, you don't really kind of, we're so like, we gotta, you know, we're in the weeds, but then to really kind of talk to people who are like, well, I didn't know that there were all these other issues related to it. And I never had, I never really heard this perspective or, you know, what are the issues you've heard with California from in different states, how to legalize it was really informative and really validating to say, right, we are doing this on the right path. We have built a good coalition of people. We, we do have great advisors who are helping us understand how to, how to navigate this. And collectively, the industry is pushing, the right people in the industry are pushing to do this the right way. And that was really, that was really, really welcoming, especially going to New York and getting, you know, I love New York. So it's just like going home and just getting this warm welcome from like the politicians and the leaders in the community there was pretty amazing. I think uh, all of us, at least me, I'm a, a great lover of New York too. I had the opportunity to spend a good bit of my life working in New York and kind of living there for a while. And you know, to think about what's going to happen when the creativity and the energy of New York gets married to legal cannabis is just, it's really exciting. If the city is going to be so much a groovier place to go to, I'm like so looking forward to it, right? Um, you know, one of the reasons that I asked about the difference between going and lobbying at the Capitol in Albany and having the conversations in the neighborhoods, right, in African-American neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color is that some of the most difficult, challenging conversations that I've had about cannabis have been in communities of color. And, and I'm just wondering about, about how that was for you, what your reception was like. Did you get challenged a lot? Um, did you find yourself on a defensive uh, foot? How was that really in, engaging at the neighborhood level? I mean, on the Reverend Flake side, so we went to meet with Reverend Flake um, in Queens, he couldn't make it with his kids and sort of the kind of key members from his church and going to, and you know, the black church gatekeeper for so much. And in a lot of communities, they've been the ones who stopped, you know, dispensaries and legalized and legalized country and legalized cities. So wanting to have that conversation with them to understand what are the constituents saying? And is this a conversation that's being had in the church but in the wider community and his sons and daughters and the people who were there were like, it is happening. And, you know, we haven't taken a, firm stance one or other. For us, the bigger issue is the community. They spend a lot of time building up their community in terms of economic development, schools, real estate, all those things. How can we look at this from a community development standpoint? Because that's what our concern is as a black church that is based in Queens. We see the gentrification happening. We see it happening now. And we know that this is going to also be part of that. 
So we have to look at it from two sides. One, we understand we all, we get it. We, we, there's no question of the merits of it. We understand the benefits of it as a plant medicine, great. When we, we need to understand how can we communicate to our community what the economic impact is, which is something CJ and I, we've always talked about. It's like, it, the, the, you know, you, it's not a liquor store. It is, there's so much that can be brought to communities from that are plant touch or non-plant touch that can bring revenue taxes as well as jobs and new ways of thinking about working in the industry that a lot of people are kind of closed off because they see cannabis as another form of policing, liquor store, drugs, it's dope, that whole thing. So shifting that narrative is really interesting to understand, to see how New York gets it, they see it, the people we spoke to, but yet they also are fighting against it. They recognize that the constituents and the community people are, they need to educate them. So one of the things they want to know from us is how do we do that? How do we, what information can we give them? How do we talk about it? How do we show them that, yeah, California, Colorado, Oregon, Washington, like there are ways to do this that take that into consideration and also will allow people to benefit from it and own, be part of the industry and own part of the industry and not just be sort of left out. So CJ or, or Willie, what, what kind of advice do you have, right? There's a lot of conversations that are going on in communities of color. It's going on in families, it's going on in churches, it's going on in, in neighborhoods. And, you know, for me, I can tell you that there have been times when it's been really, really intimidating when I've walked into, you know, a crowd full of, of church constituents who are all adamantly opposed to cannabis and attempted to have a reasonable conversation about it. And, you know, as the only white guy in the room, it made it a little bit more challenging uh, for me. But, you know, I think that, that what I'd really like to hear is what your advice is to other young people of color who are facing a conversation with their grandma, who may be Jehovah's Witness or maybe another deeply religious uh, person, um, or with their pastor uh, or um, somebody else that's important in their life. How do you, how do you have those conversations? Oh man, <laughs> depending on the grandma, depending on grandpa, whoever, you know, luckily my grandma is, so kind and sweet and approachable um you gotta be you gotta be open i feel like you gotta show them statistics they love data they love the numbers you know uh, my grandma at least you know she loves research and, and seeing actual stories and, and hearing relatable stories uh, I, I remember i would just show her different stories because she's dealing with uh bone marrow issues right now and just you know dealing with she's getting older you know and she's she's getting a lot less uh active around the house so i've been just showing her um different topicals and and, and gels and some cancer patient stories and yeah you know those are those are the easiest ways to kind of ease the conversation you know um, showing other stories but I mean, it's it's a difficult one, Willie. How do you jab at that? I think it's so much of it is I think educating yourself first, so you can come from a right. place of knowledge and compassion. Because I think that one of the things that we've seen, and I think we, the three of us have all definitely seen, I think the world's seen, is you know, kids with epilepsy, kids with autism, people who are vets, people who are going to PTSD. There's so many stories of people whose lives have been changed by this plant in so many ways. 
medically. And medically is always, it has been the way that I think as well, for people to really understand it first because they can see the opportunity. And also the idea that it's not just smoking and getting high. It's like, it could be a cream, it could be a gel, it could be a tincture, it could be a transdermal patch. You know, it could be a bath bomb. It could be help, helping you relax and deal with anxiety. And, you know, if you think about this year alone, just the pandemic and COVID, how much cannabis is, the sales have been pretty steady in some places even increasing because people are using it as a way to deal with just the amazing amount of uncertainty and anxiety and depression and loneliness, all the things that are happening. You know, I think getting people to understand, even if it's not ingesting it, but understanding how it can just help relax you, I think is a really great start because that gives people an opportunity to say, okay, I never thought about it this way. I never saw it this way. It's not just getting high and making music and blah, 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 which is great, but somehow that's been able to bad thing. I think that's the first, that's always been a really good way in because it, you, it allows you to, sh to humanize it in a way that people maybe haven't recognized and show the breath sort of derivative application that it, that it has. And then the second part is the economic side. Like there's a lot of money being made and it's being made by a lot of white people who don't care about our neighborhoods, don't care about our churches, don't care about our communities, don't care about parole, don't care about sort of criminal justice reform, don't care about black lives. So how can we make sure that we aren't going to be left out and our communities, our communities, dispensaries, whatever, wherever they are, this industry is being run by people who don't have our self-interest involved at heart, realistically, and being able to have that conversation. Because you know we talk about, it's not just also about touching the plant, but all the ancillary businesses that are part of the industry from graphic design, accounting, legal, all the things that are legal businesses that are part of being built or helping support this industry, I think are key because then it's also like, oh, right, I didn't think about it that way. So the more you can kind of shift people's understanding of for the last hundred years, you've been told lies and propaganda that have not been true. Here's what we see from the 30 or whatever number of states that have some medical program globally. Then people, then that becomes a conversation because then with everyone, it's like, oh, I didn't know that. And then you can give them the data, the backup, the research, and then they can say, okay, now let's have a conversation around what this really means. And I think that's how we've done it. And that kind of seems to be a way that people respond to it very positively. Also, Steve, if I can, you know, talking to any other black and brown kids that are looking to get into the industry, thinking about it that way, you know, applying all of the tools that you already know, whatever it is that you already like, things that you already love to do, whether that's taking photos, you know, making music, you know, a lot of companies need just background music for content and videos and, and you know, uh, security, so many different things um, to think about as far as the ancillary businesses. So just wanted to add on that. It's a great addition, right? Whenever um, young people ask me how to break into the cannabis industry, uh, I give them the same advice that I would if they were going to break into any industry, but especially true with cannabis, right? What is it that you love to do? What is it that you would be doing if somebody wasn't paying you to do it, that you'd be doing anyhow? And with cannabis, we have this amazing opportunity because the whole industry is just being born. It doesn't exist yet. It's just being born. So it needs everything. It needs software. It needs background music. It needs animation. It needs quality control. It needs analysis. It needs management. It needs finance. It needs compliance. It needs everything, right? So whatever it is that pulls your strings, you have this unique opportunity to be able to go into an industry that will pay you for doing that thing and uh, there's no better reward in life than to be able to spend it doing the things that you that you think are most important
Um, you know, we've been having this conversation about attitudes towards cannabis in the African-American community. And I think it's important to note that a lot of the opposition to cannabis reform that we've seen in communities of color and African-American communities, I think, comes from the disproportionate impact that prohibition has had on those communities. It has been the communities of color that have seen their sons and their fathers and their grandfathers hauled away and locked up. It's the African-American community that's seen out of control street markets with all sorts of ancillary violence being visited upon them. Uh, it's the African-American community that sees this burden of disparate enforcement. And, uh, and so I think that, you know, one of the things that's, that's I have found as uh, effective is really just trying to explain the difference between the damage that the criminalization and prohibition of cannabis has done and the actual uh, plant itself. Um, so we're kind of reeling here uh, for the audience, um, for the benefit of the audience. We've kind of been holding this question uh, because last night was the first U.S. presidential debate. And for those who have not seen it yet, it's, it's quite an amazing spectacle. And so I just want to open up a little time here because we're together and we got to process this thing. What did you think of that debate last night? I mean, I watched, I had a dinner, so I watched kind of the first half of it and then watched, watched the rest of it. It wasn't a debate because you can't have a debate when one person is just shouting and bullying and interrupting and won't stop talking. You know, how can you have a civil conversation with someone who won't stop talking, who also is just lying so much about everything that they're talking about and also just taunting and being childish and being so rude and so sort of like, unpresidential, that's his entire presidency, but just not having enough wherewithal to be like, I have something to say and I want to get my point across versus I'm going to name call, bully, like, you know, just be a complete dick for no, and, and, and sometimes interrupt him. And I, you know, I give Joe Biden so much credit for, you know, holding the line and not taking the bait and being, but yet also still being strong and being very much like, you know, you're a clown, stop talking. It was like, it was like debating a, a four-year-old. Like, how do you how do you talk to someone who's not going to listen? And it's it's indicative of just sort of the place we're in as a country and the world right now, where there's this sort of side of the country and people who are just don't you're mad at me because I'm wearing a mask, but somehow it makes you think that I'm part of a conspiracy. This sort of alternate reality that people are living in around health and safety and science and truth and facts is exactly what he represents. And Joe Biden did a really good job, in my opinion, of just you know really trying to engage with the key points of what he wants to say, being able to talk about what, it, what, we, what we need to do, like trying as much as he could to ignore the clown on, the, on, the, on his left, and just making it making a case for, you know, reminding the country of what a president should look like and what a leader of the free world has responsibility to be done. And also the mess that we're in that we need to clean up because four more years of the current administration is unimaginable in terms of just on the scale of COVID, death, health insurance, all the things that they want to do is we're, we're losing this democracy. So I think I was like, I don't think Joe should debate him anymore because if that's the, the format, then it's pointless because you can't really even hear what he has to say. But yeah, it's, it's, it's fine for a lot of people because we're like, right, we're reminded of like how much of a bully he is and how unprepared he has always been for this role and what's really at stake. Everything's at stake. 
I'm gonna be honest. I didn't even want to watch it. I didn't feel the need to. I, I didn't. I watched the highlights afterwards, and you know, it was just a joke of the house. It was the it was the household joke of the night last night, and we just, you know, tried to really <laughs> forget that this guy is actually the president. But you know, I I just hope it inspired more people to really vote and really do more research and figure out how we can fix this whole situation we're in before it's too late. Because I really don't want another four years of this. And that's looking like a reality of not everybody is on point. And um, yeah, it was, it was another wake up call just for how, how, how bad this really is. Well, I'm going to share my thoughts on, on the debate and the election in just a moment here. But uh, I'm going to save that for my outro and uh, just check in with both of you. Um, anything else going on? I mean, there's like a whole list of questions that I wanted to get to that we haven't had time to. Um, if you could just give us the highlights of what else is happening in your lives and how the audience can stay in touch with you. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about the new partnership we just signed off on. Yes, definitely. Yeah, we, I mean, this is the first public announcement we're pleased to announce. We just formed a um, sort of strategic alliance with a company called Tariga Science out of New York. They're a life science company. Really great Seth founder, New Yorker, vegan, kosher. It's important why they bring that up in a minute. Um, and have been really working on, you know, looking at CBD and CBG, hemp side, and saying how can we make products that have an advocacy, supplements that can help people. And they've created an amazing line of CBD, CBG gum that's vegan, kosher, now halal certified. So he's like, we really want to believe in diversity and inclusion and have products that everyone can consume and everyone can use. Um, and organic, no additives. And, you know, really, really have taken the time to put, the, to put their money where their mouth is and supporting the diverse and equitable sort of causes that we're working with them on. And we're going to be also developing a Frank White um, CBD, CBG gum products with them. So we're excited to launch that. It'll be coming towards the end of the year, beginning of the year. And right now, oh, let me show you. Sorry. This is what it looks like. And we're going to be launching in a few weeks because um, it's National Coming Out Month. Um, it's National Gay LGBTQ History Month in October, and October 11th is National Coming Out Day. We're going to be um, doing a they have a rainbow pack. All the six of their colors are six of their flavors are rainbow. So we're going to do a rainbow pack, which will be a, a, a opportunity to kind of get a sampler of all the flavors. Some have zinc, some are kosher. All of them are kosher and vegan. And, and we have a you know there's a think big I think 13 is our discount code for free shipping and a discount, but. Really excited to talk about how do we work, how do we start to bring, you know, a new way of enjoying the benefits of these plants in a different way. And then the fact that they've taken so much time to do it in such a healthy way is really important for us. And being able to really also support the LGBTQ community and the, and the experience of our community really fighting for legalization from the beginning and, and the diversity and amplify the voices that are there are really something we're really excited about. So that's, that's going on. Get the music thing, Get the album. Music, we got music. Oh my gosh. So we've been working on Ready to Dance. It's a music project. All of, some of my dad's songs reimagined as house and techno records. Um, Jonathan Hay, uh, Sarah Rush, they came to us with the idea. Um, and that was in the beginning of the year. And now it's sort of developed into <laughs> this, incredible project. I really can't 
describe it because people are still confused when I talk about it. But um, yeah, man, I love I love house music, um, and we felt like house and hip hop. They were both born in the underground by our people for our people, and you know the story of how they were both born needs to be told. So we've been working on that and. Um, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Biggie will be announced in on November 7th. That's going to be live on HBO. I just recently filmed like the acceptance speech for that. And that's going to be awesome. We're going to have a, a nice little event, hopefully for that, if I can con convince Willie to, to do this with me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, man, it's been, it's been busy. We've been all over the place. It's been awesome. And, and then we have a fashion of we had a, that Hall of Fame will have there's a limit there's a T-shirt that we're gonna be sending you, Steve. It's not a there's not a brand on it, but it's it's on the front at least. Um, so some they have a apparel line we're working on and a collaboration with that. And we're also finalizing, knock on wood, um, some a deal in the next month or so for our first Frank White flower product that will be launching at the beginning of the year in California first as well. So excited about that and talking to other states about some licensing programs opportunities to bring the flower product to market throughout 2021. So next year for us. Music, fashion, CBD, gum, cannabis, all the things. And, you know, just, you know, continue to fight for, let's come on New York. We got to get legalization sorted out. We got to get this, on, we got to make this happen and do it right. And how can the audience stay in touch with you? ComeThinkBig.com is our website. It's also ComeThinkBig on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Snapchat, maybe. <laughs> Snapchat. <laughs> also, Frank White. Frank White Co. on Instagram. Yes. Sorry, Frank White Co. On Instagram. And if you love smoothies, CJ Wallace is the best smoothie maker on, on social media. So you got to follow him for the smoothies. What's your, what's your IG, CJ? At C. Jordan Wallace. And I am at the T H E M A C K S T R, the Maxter. So yeah, give us a follow. We are excited. Steve, thank you so much for having us. It's been amazing. Well, thank you for being here uh, with us. Um, you know, I'm so impressed with the work that the two of you are doing, uh, both on the political equity <clears throat> policy level. I really admire the way that you're making that kind of work a core of what you're doing at the heart of your endeavors. Um, and then also really moving out aggressively and starting to ink these deals and starting to put some diverse brands and some diverse ownership uh, into the cannabis industry. I think that both of those things are, are so important. And, and CJ, um, it's just really wonderful to see a young person who is using the kind of platform that you've inherited to really advance, um, advance things that are going to return to the community, that are going to uh, return to the world. And it's, you know, I've had an opportunity to run into a lot of young people in Hollywood and other places who are really adrift. And the, the sense of, of solidness that I get from you is it's a wonderful thing to say. So I, I, I wish you guys the very best of luck moving forward with it. Please let me know anything that I can do to assist moving forward. And um, I think you nailed it, Willie. When we think about the debate last night, Trump was a complete dick. That's probably the best summation that I've heard of it uh, thus far. <clears throat> and it made the choice in the election 
I think, clearer for a lot of people. This has been a very, very difficult election for me, not because I have unclear feelings about Trump, but because I'm deeply familiar with the prohibitionist history of both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, who has spent the major parts of their careers trying to slow down or stop cannabis reform, or in some cases, actively incarcerating people. Um, I don't trust either one of them. I think that we've already seen some of the effects of, of the Biden policy um, being manifested in the MORE Act being stopped in the Democratic Party platform. On the other hand, uh, it's very difficult for anybody to do anything other than work to see a change of government in Washington, D.C. as soon as possible. Uh, one of the reasons I moved to California was so I wouldn't be in a swing state where I had to make really difficult political choices. But I know that many cannabis voters all around the country are in places where this vote is really, really critical and really important. What I ask of you, what I ask of everybody, really no matter who you vote for, is that before you pull that lever, before you ink that ballot, get in touch with the campaigns. Get in touch with the offices of the candidates and let them know very clearly how you feel about cannabis and that you expect by the time of the next election to see a much more aggressive policy and progressive legislation having been passed. Um, we're all going to get through this thing all together. We are fortunate to have cannabis to nurture us and teach us and comfort us in times like this. I think one of the other things that's really come through in this conversation is how important community and family is to being resilient, how important our connections are to each other uh, when we are suffering under prohibition, under stigma, under the other forms of oppression. And I just want to close by saying a word to those of you in our audience who are in difficult situations whether you've been arrested, uh, whether you're facing trial, whether you are in prison now, whether you're in a situation where you have to hide your cannabis use from almost everybody, know this, you are not alone. There are hundreds of millions of people around the world who have had the same experiences that you've had with cannabis. They've drawn the same lessons from those experiences, and we all share a common value system. Don't worry, stay strong. We are coming.